Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. How you doing? I'm doing surviving. I'm yes. doing surviving, you know, <laughs> post, we're, we're recording this in that week between Christmas and New Year's where... Like everybody gets sick at the same time. Everybody has to get like 48 hours of work in, in the middle of the week before they take a break again. So it's like, everything's crammed in. Uh, But, you know, we were going to record with Micah today, this episode that we've been teasing for a while. Unfortunately, she's out with the flu, but she's getting better. She's on the mend. The kids are on the mend. I feel like I'm, uh, I'm here. I'm ready to roll and I'm excited to see you again. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well off the heels of Christmas as of course you are as well. And the whole world is. Had a great time. It's nice to kind of be on the 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 other end of that, essentially, and be back in my house and be in the quiet and in the nice space. But I really had a great Christmas. It sounds like you did as well. We did. It was wild, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, and I got a very special Christmas present from a very good friend of mine who I happen to be speaking with today. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Jamie. He got me the, the brand new collector's edition of uh, Blade Runner that was just put out like a month ago. But who who published it? Um, well, I think Zavi is the people I bought it from, but I don't know who the, I don't remember who actual are responsible for the re-release. Yeah. It's just, it's a, and it's limited to 3000 copies and it's just this incredible collector set, which I know many of you got because we've been seeing them on social media, but Jamie very kindly got me that for Christmas. It was something that I wanted, but I hadn't spent money on because I was too busy buying presents for the kids. <laughs> so I, uh, I've been really, really loving that. It's a beautiful edition. It's got a limited, it's got lithographs and everything. And, uh, we have a new, a projector in our house now for the first time. And, uh, we were watching that on the projector this week and I cannot wait for that. Nice. Nice. Well, also, I think it's important to mention to our listening audience right now that this is the last Blade Runner recording. Although when you're hearing this, it's going to be in two, in 2023, but this is the final recording that we're doing in the 40th anniversary year of the original Blade Runner film. So this is a, a great way to send off. Um, of course, we're going to still be talking about it. There's so much there's so much to discuss in the future, but this is a very momentous year for Blade Runner. And Blade Runner 2049, it's five-year anniversary as well, but more importantly, for the original Blade Runner. It has been a momentous year across many fronts. And before we get into some of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this episode today as kind of our little capstone at the end of our 40th anniversary Blade Runner coverage, we wanted to take a special minute just to give a shout out to all of the patrons who joined us this year, because we really did so great with this program this year. And in a more direct way than ever before, our patrons were the reason we were able to do a film shoot, for example, which we just wrapped a few weeks ago for Perfect Organism. They were also the reason we were able to uh, pay our artists this year, like Jason Judah, our incredible artist for the 40th anniversary design that we commissioned of Rachel. 
back over the summer, uh, we were able to pay him using Patreon money. And, um, and all of this was directly attributable to the people whose names you're about to hear, as well as the rest of our patrons who have been here with us for years and who will get a full shout out again on another episode. But uh, we just wanted to take a moment and go back to January and let you know uh, who joined us this year, including some who just joined us a few days ago. So without further ado, thank you so much to our 2022 patrons, Shantanu Thakur, Retronauts Does Adventure Game Episodes, Jason Judah, Ben Rush, Greg Bromley, Marcus, Devin Q. Jordan Patinod, Sander Kempen, Nick DeBauer, Philip Pace, Eric Gordon, Natasha Blockoff, Nolan Eller, Abir Tarafdar, Yossarian, Amanda Fisher, Blood Hut, Stephen Riquez, Richard Alonso, Vincent Harris, Steve Paterson, Adrian Persolia, Don Lawler, Vertigo, Stephen Barton, James, Larry Cornette, Martin Griffin, Thomas Johnstone, and as of just a couple days ago, Otachi Babadook. Uh, which is another just great name. Thank you so much to all of you for joining. Yes, thank you guys so much. And Natasha Blockoff. I'm going to Natasha your Blockoff. Natasha Blockoff. And uh, Babadook. Just that movie, The Babadook. From, that's just a strange last name. I'm sure, it's, I've never heard that as a last name before. Very Yeah, I'm sure it's a reference to that movie. Yeah. I, yeah. I would assume so. If not, that's a pretty badass name to have. For sure, for sure. Yes, thank you guys so much. We are able to do what we do because of you essentially. And yes. uh, the short film we're working on for Perfect Organism has come because of the money that you've given us. So thanks again. Yeah. And we got big things in store for Blade Runner as well, which you are directly supporting. And there'll be more than that feature film. in the new year. <laughs> feature length. Shoot, shot three hour. <laughs> yeah. Blade Runner 2199. Actually. <laughs> uh, that's a joke, by the way, for now. Anyway, uh, so we wanted to kind of get back into our Blade Runner 2019 coverage a little bit here as we close out the year by revisiting a topic that comes up quite a bit when we talk about Blade Runner, but one that we've kind of been putting off getting into for a while because we kind of wanted the right moment for it. And we figured here it might be a good one. A lot of people, when they talk about Blade Runner, they talk about it as a film noir, right? And there's a lot of conventions that go into that. I mean, it's a film noir science fiction story, basically. But when you talk about film noir, you talk about things like cinematography, you talk about things like voiceovers, you talk about things like a you know damsel in distress narrative. But Blade Runner, of course, is a film noir on many fronts, and one of them is the idea that it's basically at its heart a detective story, in the same way a lot of Humphrey Bogart films from the 40s and 50s were. Uh, and the detective that we're following, of course, is Rick Deckard, who is a member of the Los Angeles Police Department's Rep Detect Unit. He's a Blade Runner, of course. So we wanted to look at law enforcement a little bit in these two films, and I, I will hopefully in the comics and things as well. Uh, to sort of unpack some of how law enforcement shows up in this universe, of course, with Gaff and Joshi and, and Deckard, but also in things like, for example, the new Blade Runner RPG, which is unmistakably a law enforcement focused or at least set uh, narrative. So, yeah, we kind of wanted to close out our 2022 anniversary coverage with a little bit of uh, talk about the police in the world of Blade Runner. Yes, and it's a fascinating topic. It's one that we've we've danced around a little bit or we've talking about this or that and there was a moment i think in an episode i can't remember how long ago it was where we're talking about the blade runner universe as a police state and we haven't really jumped into that full idea and in my opinion i don't know if you share this but i feel like the world of blade runner certainly also 2049 but the original it's it's a world that is highly controlled as a, I almost want to say a military style police presence. And no one's really talked about that too much. 
and uh, I really feel like it it informs what we're seeing. It informs how people are behaving. It informs everything. But it's this 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 undercurrent that we're seeing. We see the police everywhere, but really we really don't know why. Oh, yeah. And in 2019, you know, of course, we have the Blade Runner unit, but we also have, like you're saying, just LAPD officers everywhere in the background. A lot of them have those distinctive visors on, uh, which was that's like such a great costume. But I love the LAPD outfits in, the, in yes. 2019. Uh, but they're ever present, right? They're just all over the place. And of course, the LAPD building itself in both films, although they're two different buildings, they're the the tallest things you can see. They are like the heart of the megalopolis that is Los Angeles. In 2019, of course, you have that cylindrical, you know, massive spire with the, the you know, all the angles on top that the spinners can land on. And then in 2049, you have this new building, which was formed after the first one was demolished in the comics, actually. If people uh, read the 2029 arc, that was where that, that particular building was bombed or uh, caught on fire. The 2049 version of the LAPD building, which I think is there as of the short films as well, so it's been there for a couple decades, is even more imposing. And the letters LAPD, of course, are like 40 stories tall. Mm. There's this just unbelievable, of course, uh, you know, Weta did this as a miniature, which was incredible, but just this huge towering skyscraper where they sit, you know, literally and figuratively above the crowd. And one of the reasons we've talked about this kind of police police state concept before is because Blade Runner is taking place in a world that is essentially has already descended into chaos, right? Through the depletion of the environment and natural resources and the death, uh, you know, the extinctions of animals. Like the world that we see even in 2019 is beyond repair. Like there's a reason why everybody is crammed into these cities together. It's because the world is largely uninhabitable. And if you could get off, you would have gotten off world by that point. So everybody who's stuck behind is like really trapped there. And that's the context that LAPD comes to the power that we see it in in 2019, even separate from the Blade Runners. I'm curious if those who have remained behind are are those who can't afford. Well, certainly. okay. so we know that if you have some type of communicable disease or predisposition or probably. uh, what do you call that when you have a an existing like a congenital congenital, but you have an existing medical condition? What's that called? Like a pre-existing pre existing. I guess a pre existing condition. Um, I would imagine none of those people were allowed to go because they don't. They're trying to like, you know, have the best of the best go and propagate a new world or whatever whatever off world looks like. So who's left behind are the invalids in in many ways. We don't think in that context when we see when we're um, when we are taken into the world of Blade Runner for the first in the first film, we're we're looking at the sights and the sounds. We're hearing the music. We're seeing the streets. We're seeing people walking. We're not realizing that those people are the discarded people. Those people left are the people are who were unwanted, who could not make it, who were who could who didn't have the biological credentials in some ways, the physiological credentials to have a better life in a, in another off-world colony. So as I think about that and as I re-engage Blade Runner, it's almost it almost makes it a very sad like it's this it's this cradle of this last cradle of humanity. I mean, I'm sure there are other cities similar all over the world where you have very similar people living their lives. They couldn't go off world. They couldn't 
forge a better life, so they're just stuck with the life that they're living. So probably the life that they're living is one of debauchery and drugs and black markets and living, you know, doing the best that they can with very, very little. Um, and so, and so, if that's true, what are they going to need, or what our governments think they're going to need? A police presence, a big police presence, because a, a world like that is ripe for replicant takeovers, replicant uh, actions, as as we've seen and we see in the first Blade Runner. So the world of Blade Runner is a tragedy. That's essentially what I'm trying to say, that we are the book when the book is opened, when that storybook is opened, it we are opened into tragedy. We don't notice that. We don't see that. We're in this science fiction world. Certainly when the original Blade Runner came out, um, it was a world we'd never seen before. It was a world we'd never even imagined before. And of course you had the the heavy Japanese influence and then you see the people. And But if you really look at the world, what do you see? You see um, devastation. You see want. You see people scrounging for any possible thing. The only people that you really see that are kind of having a good time, quote air quotes, are the people at Taffy's Bar. And we don't know what their stories are, how they live, who they are. Even in 2049, you see like all those people living in Kay's building. Like, I don't know if they're living on the stairs. It seems like they don't have a home. It seems like they live in the warmest place possible. And that could be in the stairwell of a very large apartment building. That's probably also sanctioned by the police because Kay lives there. I would imagine the police got him that, that, that apartment and set him up doing the job that he's doing. So to back up, I really firmly believe that the world is far more devastating than we give it credit for. And, and in so doing that world needs a police force. At least they believe it, the governments believe that they do to make sure everything, because what's going to happen to the earth if it goes unchecked? I mean, who knows? Who knows? And people like Wallace or people like Tyrell stay in power by using their power, by buying off the police, by buying security for all of their resources so they continue to, con so they can continue to be who they are. It's interesting to look at how policing evolves through Blade Runner 2 as to what you're talking about. And you see this in the comics as well, that the that a lot of the at least the Reptitech units become privatized. They become sort of almost like Pinkerton agents that are used by companies like Tyrell or Wallace to enforce. Right. So you have this like state, at least what appears to be like a state funded and sponsored police force that gradually gets overtaken or at least competes with privatized police forces as well. And the whole notion of who gets to enforce the law really evolves, I think, as corporations become even more powerful among the people who are still on Earth. And going back to something you were saying um, a little while ago, you know, the people who are still on the planet are, of course, largely not medically fit to, to, to get off world, or at least according to their standards or whatever, or too poor or whatever. But there's also subsets of people who stay behind because they want to, because it suits them, right? And we see that, of course, with famously Neander Wallace, right, who could one could imagine go anywhere he wants to in the entire known universe, and yet he stays behind in this giant cathedral. But you also have police. You have people like Bryant, right, in 2019, who I get the sense is that's just the way that he lives his life. He's very happy to stick around. He's, you know, made a career. He's middle-aged. He's, you know, likes what he's doing. 
and uh, and he ha- functions well in an environment that is very hostile, I think, outwardly, because he has a lot of power. So you have people who stay behind, I think, to chase that power trip as well, where they can really enforce things. I think you're you're onto something also about the level of life and activity that we see in 2019 in Los Angeles not being representative of the level of life and activity elsewhere. I really, I get the sense when I watched the movie that a huge reason why it's so, you know, Pacific influenced in terms of Asian cultures as well is because like a lot of things over there are gone as well. And a lot of things to the east of the West Coast in the United States are gone. And so you basically have this, this huge consolidation of population in this like one area and in, in my head canon, and this is probably written out somewhere, but I'm not thinking of it. I think of it as like there's LA and New York basically left. And like everything in between those two is just like unsalvageable waste, but at least by the time of 2049. But I even think by 2019, I think people have largely fled the more rural areas in the middle of, of you know, the United States. And they're, they're basically just consolidating resources in the coasts as people get off world, they're moving into those areas. So you're absolutely right that what we see is this this rise of this police state to deal with that because the world was not set up to all of a sudden transition to this model where everybody was crammed into this very, very, very small space. There's also real world parallels to this, right? I, I think a lot of Kowloon Walled City in Hong Kong, which is no longer what it once was, but at once upon a time was basically the seven to eight story tall um, block of tenements that was just this like complete... Have you ever seen pictures of it, Jamie? Oh, I got to show you later. It's like it absolutely I might incredible. have. I might have. It rings a bell, but I'm not positive. Yeah, it was just it was like a quote unquote slum. I feel like there's a lot of pejorative terms that come up when you talk about places like this. But it was it was this it was like the most densely occupied square mile in the world. And it was like seven to eight stories of just these buildings that were piled on top of each other where there really was no law enforcement at all because law enforcement couldn't penetrate it. And so you had, you know, gangs rise up and you had Yakuza and, and no, not Yakuza. You had, you had um, other gangs that like came into power in that environment and they basically became the de facto law enforcement for this densely populated place. What I think we see in 2019 is the LAP trying to avoid that happening. You know, I think that that they're aware that there are too many people to police at this point. So they make their presence really visible. Like they have spinners, right? For example. So they fly above the heads of everybody, keeping an eye on them all the time with searchlights, with sirens, with the megaphones. We hear them talking all over the place. We have them literally flying above people's heads. And then for the ground troops, we have them decked out with this unmistakable regalia with lights and with all the you know batons and shit so that they're just very, very visible because what they're trying to avoid is, of course, what goes on to happen three years after the events in the first movie, which is the blackout, right? Which is an uncontrollable event. And um, so it makes sense that the world of 2019 is sort of perched on this little bit of a ledge and that the police are trying to compensate for it. So then you have that and then you have the blackout, which which was the result not of people, you know, humans rising up, but the result of replicants finally being able to organize to a level that they were able to do something for their own freedom. And then you have the LAPD when it gets to 2049, which has then reassumed its power and reasserted its control and is even more visible and even more uh, you know, violent, I think, than ever. Like people are really afraid of the police in 2049 and the police in 2049 are outwardly and clearly replicant. That's the other thing that's interesting. In 2019, I'm not going to even get into the Decorap conversation. But we get the sense that there is at least no public awareness of replicants serving as 
Blade Runners or police officers. In 2049, Nexus 9s are just that's that's the that's who goes out and hunts other replicants. They're they're made to do that. So we have like there was a wall that was passed between those two movies with, with the blackout and everything, where the police decided that in order to assert control, they had to um, assert real dominion over the world. And I think uh, it's kind of interesting to like look at the projection of those two things between those two movies, or the not the projection, the um, the to look <laughs> at the connection and the way that things, uh, you know, the, the way that the two movies connect to each other with the police force and how it changes over time. As you were talking and we as we discussed the police force, what comes to mind when I think about both certainly the world of both films, 2049, of course, is 30 years later and it's a, a different world, but it's also the same world. But what I feel when I watch these films are hints of George Orwell's 1984. There's a very of course, there's it's a dystopian. 2049 is even more dystopian. But there's there's the idea in a dystopia, certainly Orwell's dystopia, where. It is a dystopia, but at the same time, like the 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 giant heads, the 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 um, the voices in the in the intercom system is kind of saying that no, everything is fine. Just do what you need to do. Everything is okay. And I think about the uh, the blimp in both films. Um, you know, a new life awaits you in an off-world colony. Blah 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 blah. But it's being projected to people who can't afford it, who can't leave. Um, maybe there's some stragglers here and there, um, but it's this environment that's full of police, but also full of narrative, too, kind of shaping how people are living their lives, at least attempting to, at least. So when you look at it, the the big picture, the you know the the panoramic picture is, oh, it's not that bad. Kind of getting back around to that, it's interesting to look at the events of 2009 in the comics, which which are still still my favorite of the comics that have come out so far, because we see some of where that begins in there, right? We have uh, Detective Moreau, who's the first Blade Runner, coming into his own as a he's, – he's basically chasing down what could be a replicant uprising. Uh, and he's just an LAPD officer, but he ends up coming up with a lot of the techniques that Blade Runners would go on to use and improving the the need for a rep detect unit. But what you see happening is you see him as just an LAPD detective. He's a you know crime scene investigating detective. And because the LAPD gets word that there could be something happening, that replicants could – there could be more going on than they know with – I believe their Nexus 4 models in that one. Uh, they task him with chasing down this one particular lead. And then, of course, that's only 10 years before the events of 2019. By the time we get to 2019, we have, you know, uh, Deckard as a as a Blade Runner who's so good that he's, you know, everybody knows his name, allegedly. Everybody knows what he can do, what he's capable of. He's already kind of out of the game, right? Even just, even though it's been, one would assume, under 10 years, unless he could, maybe he was a, just a detective before the Blade Runner force was started, before the Reptitech stuff. But you get the sense that like that basically those 10 years were were very hard on him and he does not want to continue with that line of work. 
And you see in that intervening 10 years that this whole force has spread up within the LAPD to deal with replicants because things had already spiraled out of control. When you go back to 2009, to Blade Runner 2009, you see a world where that hasn't happened yet. You see a world that's very optimistic, where the replicants are, you know, free and out and open and are very useful and very polite on the surface. Although, of course, below the surface, there's a lot more going on. And uh, the LAPD consistently throughout all of the material, whether that's books the or the uh, RPG or the films or Black Lotus even, is is consistently trying to stamp out the next wave of replicants who are able to organize with themselves. Like that's basically the, the, the way that it goes. And then, of course, you get to 2049 and it has become this idea that we see in Joshi of the world is built on a wall right? Like at that point, everything else has been eroded from them. In the beginning, in 2009, it was very clear who replicants were. Like there was no, there was never any doubt that they were just created for pleasure or for war or for building things. And uh, they were tools. They weren't even, you know, very mistakable for being human or anything. Like it was just, they, they were, they were tools that were created. By the time 2019 comes around, we see that narrative really changing because they have some degree of agency. They want life, blah, blah, blah. They can organize. You get to 2049 post-blackout, and they have really become a separate but related species almost to humans. They've become an entire – they have their own cultural shorthands, and they have their ability to create movements, resistance movements like we see with Fresa. And what you see Joshi – basically coming down on is like, all we have left is that they can't reproduce like that. That is what separates us. And we are going to that, like, because of that, we can do whatever we want with them because they're incapable of human reproduction. So like, that is what separates us. That's what makes you officer K not me, right? The fact that you were not born, we made you that's, that's it. And then it's so fascinating to see a world then that has to reckon with this, with this idea of what if they don't need us to make them anymore? And what does that mean? And I guess that gets me to 2099, which of course is 50 years after 2049. Like, I, I'm really curious to see how they'll reckon with that, you know, if, if like wh- how replicants fit into society then and what kind of police force is needed, you know? What's interesting about 2049 is to a point that you made, I don't feel like the police in 2049 is there to keep the peace. They're there to make sure what Joshi is talking about in terms of that wall being broken, that wall being blown, and so there is no wall between species. At all costs, they need to make sure that that wall remains, that that, that that separation between species remains in place, or there will be war. And with war comes famine, and with war comes destruction. Um, but what I th- really think is happening is the humans are afraid that the treatment of these people after this many years... 50 plus years will then come back to haunt them. So that's what they're trying to stave off. They don't really care about what other people are doing, what other humans are doing in terms of that. I feel like they're like, whatever, we just can't have species. We can't have the species that we created reproducing number one, and we can't have them starting a revolution or a movement on their own. And that seems like, again, the focus, like that's what they're terrified of at, at all costs. And so like, even when you see K in the, the um, food court, you see police all over that food court. At the same time, in 2019, when Deckard 
is, you know, he's running after Zora. You see police everywhere there too, everywhere. They're everywhere. And it's really fascinating. And we get, again, caught up in how cool their costumes are, but it's really scary. It's scary how, how prevalent the police um, presence is in these worlds. And I don't, I don't think that um, they're not a threat to humans. They're a threat to replicants. I think they're there for order. They're there to keep order, whatever that order is, um, to make sure that, you know, I'm sure like the police presence where BB's bar is, they're making sure that these replicants know who they are. This is what you do. This is your function. This is your zone. This is where you stay. You don't leave this zone because you can't or, or whatever, whatever the rules might be. Uh, and I, again, I think we take it for granted because, you know, all of us, when we drive on the road and there's an accident, we all slow down or, or in California, if the, if the traffic gets too crazy, what happens is a, a police car will pull onto the highway and slow all the traffic down. And they'll do this weird, like weaving in and out in front of all the traffic to slow it way down so that the traffic ahead can move ahead and they can kind of break up the, the, uh, the traffic essentially on the highway. And of course, when people see that policeman doing that or policewoman or whatever, everyone slows down, everyone pays attention, every, everyone gets really scared or, and I'm sure you have this experience as well when you're on the highway and you're probably going faster than you should be and you zoom by something and there's a cop car and you're like, Oh shit. It gives, it, it makes us fearful. If we were living in this environment in 2019 and 2049, we would be scared shitless. I think in some ways it's, it's like uh, the last of us where they have to go through the, the, um, the entryway into the next, remember that one part in the last of us, I think, yeah, it was the last of us where they're trying to go visit their friends and they're, they talk to, they go to the, the guard oh, the checkpoints and yeah, checkpoints. In, in Boston. And yeah, right. I think, I feel like all of LA is a checkpoint. Everything's a checkpoint. It's really terrifying. But again, we're lost in the sights and the sound and in the romanticism of a dystopian future that is Blade Runner. So we're not really processing how frightening this environment is for someone who doesn't have power and money. Yeah, I think a, a movie that does a, a really good job of dealing with some like uh, in our universe examples of this is actually the Candyman film that mm. came out a couple of years ago mm -hmm. that Jordan Peele co co-wrote. Uh, and I can't remember the director's name and I feel terrible but she did a great job with it but we did a frame rate on that film and law enforcement as it was portrayed in that feels more like the law enforcement of la 2019 blade runner to me because mm -hmm. they were very much like outsiders right like we see the story we see like the tale of two worlds right we see like a, a black family that has kind of broken into what historically had been kind of a white world of like art markets and blah 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 and living in a building that had previously been tenement housing and then had been like gentrified right and then we see that juxtaposed with black families that are still living in the quote unquote hood, like in the in the area of Chicago that had been cordoned off, you know, for all intents and purposes with zoning and with redlining and was kind of left to its own, uh, to, you know, kind of almost like just walled off from the world. And law enforcement to the black people living in the quote white world is, you know, barely noticeable. Like barely, we don't even see them in the quote black world part of their experience. So law enforcement is like, always watching them they're always threatening them they are always just one trigger away from killing them which you know i'm not saying that's necessarily always accurate but for the purposes of that film and that particular urban context like it feels accurate to me mm, mm. as somebody who hasn't lived it uh but i i think that like we you know as a as a white man 
and I don't want to get into like, you know, we, I feel like we get all these angry messages whenever we talk about race, but like, I don't, whatever. As a, as a white man, like I don't, I've never been afraid of police in, in my life. I've, I mean, I, I've, I just yelled at a police officer uh, like a couple weeks ago because he was driving too fast in a parking lot. And I like went up to him and I was like, slow the fuck down. You can kill my dog doing that, you know? That's just like a, a way of life that I've been comfortable navigating because I've never felt threatened by them. But I have black friends who are like, how could you ever like ever feel comfortable doing that? Like when I, you know, or even Muslim friends who whenever they're driving, they're like, you know, if they're past police officer, they tell their kids to put their heads down below the level of the window because they don't want to, for whatever reason, be seen by cop. Like it just crazy stuff is very different to my experience. And I think what we see a little bit in Blade Runner is a, is a world where like everybody is very aware of where police are at all times. We know exactly what they can see. We know how many there are. We're given a little bit of that experience of what it's like to be enforced as opposed to be protected. And I think, um, you know, that's an interesting exercise. Mm, it really is. It, uh, again, uh, the more we break it down, the more insidious it really is. Um, you're not as... If you're living in an environment of 2019 or 2049 and you're, say, you're, I don't want to say Staline, but you are someone who is maybe like Chu, who is an integral part of Tyrell, he, he doesn't, he doesn't have any worries. He doesn't, he's there for, a, he's there for a reason. He's an engineer. He works on eyes and that's his job. He's not, he's not intimidated by the police because the police aren't there to intimidate him much like JF Sebastian, even though JF Sebastian has uh, the Galatian syndrome or no, no, he has what's, what's his Methuselah syndrome. That's what he Methuselah. has. Yeah. Right. Um, aside from his ailments, biblical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, aside from his ailments, the police aren't there to threaten him. So he, he comes and goes where, where he pleases. And it's interesting to view the world, um, if you are a replicant, that world is every corner and on every street is a possible threat to you. If you are someone who works at um, that bar that Decker goes to, I can't remember the name of it. Um, Taffy's. Taffy's bar. Yeah. If you go to Taffy's bar and you're, you're kind of a part of this, this kind of s small community that populates a bar like that the police aren't really there for you they might question you here and there but you know you're not really they're not there for you but in a world where you are a replicant or you are maybe on the black market somehow the police is a threat to you every minute of the day and actually i think about i don't mean to bring this up for eagle purposes but i think about gethsemane and the lives of the the replicants that we portrayed in that uh, audio drama, I feel like it was a really more realistic portrayal of people living with living within a police state and what that's like. Um, and you, even in the original Blade Runner, you, you know, like you said, you see the spinners, you hear the spinners, you hear them. What are you doing here? Where are you? Where are you supposed to be? And then you hear other alerts or other, you know, down the street, you hear this other. So they're, they're, the presence of the police is not just, it's not just a presence, it's suffocating. It's suffocating that area. But we don't pick up on that because, again, we're lost in the romance of sci-fi. This is not a pretty world. This is not a cool world. This is not an easy world. This is a world that's dangerous for almost everyone, unless you're one of the, the few that is protected that stays behind or that you're integral to the, what Tyrell is doing, the police are doing, or some other government agency.
Yeah, I mean, and I think it's easy to lose sight of what you're talking about because so many times the conventions of Blade Runner are used in very romantic ways. Like we talk about, we complain about Altered Carbon a lot, but that's a great example of it, right? The Netflix version where you have spinners as vehicles of luxury, right? We even saw that in Andor in a very different way, which didn't bother me. But like, but usually flying cars are kind of a romantic concept, right? Uh, like it, it's, if you go back to retro futurist things from 100 years ago, by this point, we were all going to be flying everywhere we went. And in Blade Runner, we finally get really believable flying cars for the most part, if you can, you know, excuse the the guy wires holding them up. Uh, and yet they're used in very non-romantic ways, which which I really love. And in 2049, that's still the case, right? In 2049, there's a police spinner, obviously, but there's also spinners that are enforcement vehicles for Wallace private security details. And there's a limousine, which should be something that's really luxurious but is actually used as like this method of transporting people off world uh as almost like a prison vehicle at least how it's deployed in 2049 so all these trappings that feel futuristic and cool are really scary other great example of that of course of course is the Voight-Kampf test in the first movie which is a tool used by the LAPD's Reptitect unit which is really a cool piece of technology and is and is beautiful to look at and functions really well and it's so poetic and yet it is a tool of that's it's scary like nobody is using that uh, as a party game like that is a fucking that is an enfor- that is a that is a service weapon you know Likewise, of course, in 2049, the baseline test, another thing that in lesser hands could have been used as a sort of fantastical sci-fi element is like non-romantic. It is just scary. It is just an enforcement tool. And the, the way technology is used in Blade Runner is almost exclusively the technology of the police that inhabit that universe, you know? And I haven't honestly thought about that. I'm sure the reason why there's a Vesper and why there's an Vesper, why there's an Esper in Deckard's apartment, I'm sure is related to his his Blade Runner capacity, right? The reason why uh, we have his, you know, he, he has a sedan, like a, a car car, is it's his police sedan, this cruiser, you know? Um, the reason why he has access to a flying car to the spinner is because that's a tool of enforcement that he has. Uh, even things like the, like the you know, the, uh, P, the PDK right, uh, blaster, Another great example, P- PKD Blaster is another great example of, I don't know why, we're recording this in the morning as opposed to the evening. That's why our, our words are a little off today. But that's something else that's like a really cool thing that could be used in a lesser movie as just this like badass gun. In Blade Runner, it is an enforcement thing that everybody's afraid of, and it is loud, and it is visible, and it is not some cool camo gun. It's like a fucking scary visibly and an audibly threatening weapon. And I think that it is, you're absolutely right. It's easy to forget about that. It's easy to forget about how scary these things would be to people living through it because we don't live through it ourselves. Like we're watching this movie for, you know, escapism a lot of the time. But if you were living in that environment every day, if you were actually being policed by these people, you'd be terrified of them, especially if you were a replicant. What's interesting too, and you brought this up a little while ago, is that by the time 2049 comes around, it really feels to me like the LAPD has basically given up on everything that's not rep detect business. Like there are still police around, but they are, they seem much less organized, much less funded. Uh, it really feels like the LAPD has this whole infrastructure built up. I don't know if it's just that one floor where Joshi is, but 
in my head canon, it's many floors of this building are just filled with Nexus 9s being processed in and out all the time. Going to their, you know, state-sponsored apartments like you were mentioning, coming back in, going through the going through all the tests, going through baseline scanning, going back out, doing their shit, and coming back, getting serial numbers day in and day out, whether they have to with force or by, you know, grace. And uh, the poli- the way that the world has evolved in 2049, I think, feels true to us, whether we're thinking of it or not, because we can see that uh, progression of the police forces in these two films in a really authentic way, because the police as they exist in 2049 are the logical end result of police that we see in 2019 going through a blackout and emerging from it with an even greater need to exert control. And last thing I'll say is I, you, br- you bring up a really good point, that, which I hadn't considered before, which is that the... The whole notion that the world is predicated on this division of reproductive abilities is really to stave off what they are convinced will be another war, right? So like when Joshi is saying that, she's not saying it in poetic terms that the world is built on a wall. You know, she she means like literally if this fucking wall breaks, we are drowning. If this if the Sepulveda wall falls apart, right, in the literal sense the you know los angeles will will burn or will drown if the world where between if the line between replicants and humans erodes to the point where there is no enforceable thing anymore then in her eyes it might as well be the sepulveda wall breaking apart like that's the end of any semblance of human society as far as they see it which is really interesting to think about that is interesting to think about and as you were again as you were talking i was thinking about 2019 and the whole sequence of Deckard running after Zora and then him finally shooting her and then she falls through the glass and of course he goes over to the body and of course in the theatrical edition you have the voiceover kind of telling you what's going on in his head and his guilt about shooting a woman in the back. But if you if you watch that scene again and you really observe what's happening, um, it doesn't seem that people are, are interested a little bit like, hey, what happened? And, and Deckard's like Deckard Blade Runner unit because the police are already there and then you hear in the background, a loud voice saying, move on, move on. Like, this is just a normal part of life because it is a normal part of life. People are, it's, and I liken the police and certainly in 2049, but both films as the Gestapo. That's what they are. They're there. And I don't say like Americans have strange ideas of what police state means. So if there's a curfew, Americans will be like, oh, my God, it's a police state. Like they don't understand what police state means. They don't understand what living in a neighborhood. And again, it goes it goes right to the disparity between a black neighborhood and, and a more influential or affluent white neighborhood. And the police state of the black neighborhood as opposed to the white neighborhood. They're very different Americas that people are living in to this day. Now, this is alive and well in the Blade Runner films. These very different experiences of this, like Deckard, even with Deckard and Kay, they had to, you know, when Kay was standing outside Stalin's um, office and there's the, the spinner there saying, you're under arrest, blah, blah, blah. Joshi needs to see you at the station. Even, even Kay as a, officer as a as a agent of the law has to go through tests has to go through questioning has to go through this and through that so no one is safe everyone's on this edge everyone's kind of walking this tightrope so imagine your whole neighborhood is a tightrope imagine what that's like and then you can imagine 
what it's like to live in the universe of Blade Runner. If you're someone who isn't supposed to be there, if you're someone who's not above board, if you're someone who's on the black market, if you're someone who's working in maybe some type of replicant underground movement or whatever, or it's an underground railroad trying to get replicants in or out or whatever. Again, I I, um, pivot back to Gethsemane. A lot of what that story is about is the same exact thing we're talking about. These people live in a police state and what that is like to live in a police state. And I think what's ironic here is I think as an audience, we feel safe. Why do we feel safe? Because we're with Kay or we're with Deckard. Nothing really that bad is going to happen to them. They're our cipher. They're our avatar. More so Deckard than Kay. I think uh, Deckard is really our avatar for 2019, which is why I never think much of him as a character because I don't, I just don't think about him as a character. If anything, at the end, like that speech with Roy Batty, Roy's talking to me. He's not talking to Deckard. I digress. So the world that they live in, the and the world that we're seeing in Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 is very um, safe for us as viewers. What's interesting, in, and this is a bit controversial for me to say because I know we don't, we both don't like the show. For Black Lotus, for the character of Elle, that world is not safe. She is not safe wherever she goes. And you feel that for her. Even though that show has full of problems and there's full has its own issues that we've talked about before. What they get right is that as a replicant in in Los Angeles in 20, what is it, 2032? 2036. 2036. She is in a, an entire environment that is not safe for her. Everyone is double looking at her. Who Who are you? Where do you belong? Why are you here? You shouldn't be here. Helping her puts you at risk. You can't even help. Like, so... I, that really is, I, I feel like the world that, or the world that we're taken into that L inhabits in Black Lotus is really a little bit closer to what it would be like to live in a city where you're uh, you're constantly under threat. And it's interesting that I pivot to that because I, I largely kind of blew that off, but I feel like looking back on it, they really get that right. They really get how dangerous a situation like that would be for someone who is other, for someone who doesn't belong. Not just they don't feel like they belong, but on a on a federal level, on a on a law enforcement level, you do not belong. You don't belong so much that we will kill you. We will retire you when we see you. Sounds like you uh sounds like you like Black Lotus, Jamie. I don't know. Oh, what I to fucking tell love you. it. <laughs> I think you love Black Lotus. Now uh I, I think that the actual underlying story to Black Lotus is re- is really interesting actually. And I think that there is something in there that could be handled really well, you know, in another format. It's just the way it eventually took place in the show didn't really ring true for me. But I agree. I think that that actually is an interesting way to look at it. You know, uh, as we kind of come to a close here on this uh, New Year's minisode, I think um, another example of policing that in Blade Runner that I want to touch on is just the RPG, which, of course, if people don't already have it, hopefully you do by this point, because it uh, officially finally released about two weeks ago as of this recording. But, um, you know, Jamie and I played it quite a bit while he was here at the beginning of the month, and um, and I've played it since then and loved it. And the first, the Electric Dreams adventure that you get, basically that you start with... Um, is really a great look at how policing works within Blade Runner, where you basically are a detective, you're a member of the Rep Detect unit, and you are chasing down leads based on rumors and trying to find out if they're substantiated. And to get there, you use a lot of technology that Blade Runner has access to. So you get to run blood tests, for example, or do phenotyping, 
or get things processed at the LAPD lab and you get to like explore the LAPD building a bit. You get to learn where bodies are stored and you get to see where things are happening. It's just a really interesting um, experience to kind of live through the police angle in a very personal way in that movie and to see what kind of moral qualms you have as a Blade Runner in that universe and to see what bothers you. I'm, and there's, there have been moments where I've been playing it and I felt kind of uncomfortable with things that I've had to do or questions that I've had to ask. Uh, which I think is really cool. So I really recommend people get that. Of course, also the uh, Blade Runner PC game is another great opportunity to do something similar, to put yourself in the shoes of a Blade Runner exploring Los Angeles and getting to the bottom of things. But I guess what I'm kind of closing on here is that the policing in Blade Runner is really of two worlds. There is the police force that we see everywhere that is enforcing things, and then there is the detective rep, rep detect side of things, where which is a lot quieter and a lot more kind of uh, all encompassing in some ways. And uh, and of course, the way that law enforcement shows up is partially due to all of these characters who are so you know eminently memorable with people like Gaff and Bryant and Joshi, but also people like uh, you know Detective Ashina in the comic books and Detective Cal Moreau, of course, who I mentioned earlier. These characters who are really unforgettable, uh, Officer K being right up there with the best of them too. So um, so. So policing in Blade Runner is a complicated thing to look at. And, and the last thing I want to say before I close is we never have talked on this show, at least that I can remember, about where the term Blade Runner comes from. I don't remember if that's ever come up before. But for those of you who don't know, it actually, of course, has nothing to do with, with uh, you know, the actual film itself. It was actually from an Alan Norse novel that was written quite a ways before the movie, like a decade before the movie came out, about black market medical procedures. And Blade Runners were, it was Blade as in uh, a scalpel for surgeries. And that was something that was just on Hampton Fancher's shelf. Uh, Actually, it wasn't the original Norse novel. It was William S. Burroughs who did an adaptation of the Norse novel for a film, uh, which was never made, but ended up getting published as a book. And so Hampton Fincher had that on his shelf, and Ridley Scott didn't like the term bounty hunter, and he was like, we find something else we can use for that. And Hampton was like, I guess we can, you know, Blade Runner, it's kind of cool. So it's funny to think that, like, that's, that the term came from this complete, just random decision that was made one day, which now feels like, how could it have ever been anything else? But the origins of the reason I'm bringing this up is the origins of the term Blade Runner are in the black market. The origins of the term are in the the things that are unseen, but are happening all over the place. And so it's fascinating that although they're completely unrelated properties other than the name, the the Norse Blade Runner novel and the Blade Runner as we see in Deckard in 2019 uh, kind of have some thematic things in common. And it's cool to tease that out a little bit, I think. So this has been fun. This has been fun. And those are very interesting similarities. And I, I will leave uh, this conversation for now as I look ahead and as I think about what the environment of the world of Blade Runner is going to look like in 2099 for that series. What the police state will be. Will there still be a police state? Will it just be this hollowed out shell where even the police are gone now and there's only remnants of people left on Earth? I don't really know. But it's going to be interesting to see how they connect everything. So I'm excited about that. Lots to look forward to. Yeah, have a great new year, my friend. You too, you too. And I will uh, see you tonight. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We got another recording tonight. So I'll see you then. Bye-bye, everybody. And thank you again to our patrons. Thank you so much.
you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.